series on the I am statements of Jesus in the Gospel of John and where we've been looking at each of his I am statements. Now these statements, they echo back to Exodus chapter 3 where God told Moses at the burning bush, I am who I am. So each of these I am statements by Jesus is in effect a claim to deity. Now, this was something that the religious leaders of his day, they understood it all too well, which was one of the reasons why they wanted to get rid of him. Now, it's one thing to claim deity, and if you or I were to make such a claim, the religious leaders would have been justified in wanting to stone us. But with Jesus, it was entirely different because Jesus had both the, creden the credentials and the track record to back up his claims. And so this morning we're going to be looking at one of those claims and the implications of that claim in John chapter 11, verses 17 through 27. And if you are following along in one of the church Bibles, uh, you will find the text on page 749. Uh, but just so you know, I'm actually reading from the ESV translation. John 11, 17 through 27. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, I am not adequate for the task at hand in preaching this message this morning. And yet it is a task that you have called me to, and your grace is sufficient. Your strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness that your power may rest upon me this morning. So I pray that you would add your blessing to the reading of your word and to the exposition of it through this message. May you receive all the honor and all the glory. For it's in your name that we pray. Amen. I remember it like it was yesterday. The date was November 12, 2008. It was the day before my birthday. It was a Wednesday morning. I was sitting at my desk at work when I got a call from my sister in Florida. Now, I had been expecting the call because I had already spoken to her at about 5.30 that morning. And about 10 o'clock that morning, sure enough, the call came in informing me that my mother had passed away. Now, I don't want to sound cold about it, but in some ways it was kind of a relief. 
uh, because the last few months of her life had been sort of a roller coaster ride, physically for her and emotionally for us, because she had been in the final stages of COPD and at one point about a month earlier had been pronounced dead and then revived. And not to sound flippant, but this time she stayed dead. Now, I spoke at her funeral and I told everyone there that my mom wasn't dead. Now, I made it clear that I was not in denial about her passing or that her earthen vessel, as Paul described it, had deceased. Yes, I wept over her. But these things notwithstanding, I pointed out that she was still very much alive. And I used this passage that we just read to support my assertion. This text and others like it are what make the funeral of a believer so much different from the funeral of an unbeliever. Because as Paul points out in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, we don't grieve the same way as those who have no hope. Now that doesn't mean that we don't grieve at all. We do. Because when death separates us from a loved one, even though we know that the separation is only temporary, their presence is sorely missed and their absence is keenly felt. We went through that just recently with the passing of Dick. And I'm sure that Sharon can attest. I'm, you still miss him, I'm sure. But yet, we still don't weep as those who have no hope. Even Jesus, when he was standing in front of the tomb of Lazarus, knowing full well that he was about to raise him from the dead, he still wept because it affected him deeply. And so it is only natural and right for us to grieve in the passing of a loved one. But as I said, we don't grieve as those who have no hope because Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Therefore, we can proclaim good news that because Jesus is the resurrection and the life, everyone who believes in him can have hope, even in the face of death. Now, to give you some background to the text, Jesus had gotten word that his friend Lazarus was sick. Lazarus was a friend of Jesus. He had two sisters, Mary and Martha, and Mary was the one who had anointed him with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair. They lived in Bethany, uh, which was a village about two miles from Jerusalem. Uh, today, we might even call it a suburb of Jerusalem, much like Voorhees, Cherry Hill, and Marlton are suburbs of Philadelphia. Now, whether Lazarus had lived in Bethany all of his life or maybe had grown up in Jerusalem, got fed up with city life and headed out to the suburbs, I don't know. Uh, but the fact is, he lived in Bethany. He and his sisters, they lived in Bethany. And Jesus often stayed at their home whenever he was in Bethany. So we know that they were pretty good friends, which probably made it all the more perplexing to Mary and Martha when Jesus didn't come right away after learning that Lazarus was ill. If he had, he could have healed Lazarus, and all would have been well. And this was something that Martha confronts him about in our text. But, you know, when he finally does show up, but... The fact is, he didn't come right away. He waited two days, and in the meantime, Lazarus, he checked out. He died. 
and now Jesus decides to show up. And upon his arrival, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. He had already been dead for four days. So apparently, Lazarus must have died the same day that Jesus got the message uh, that he was sick. Now, the Jewish people typically buried someone either the same day or the day after that they, that they died. Now, there were some later Jewish sources that indicated a belief that the soul would hover over the body for three days, hoping to re-enter it, but after the third day, it would, would give up and, and parted. So by day four, he's not coming back. Now, the text informs us that when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Now, as I mentioned a moment ago, Martha confronts Jesus about not being there to heal Lazarus when, when he was sick. She said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, John reports Martha's words just matter-of-factly, you know, without editorializing. He doesn't say anything about her body language or her tone, so we really don't know if she was, you know, kind of scolding Jesus for his tardiness, you know, and blaming that for letting Lazarus die, or if she was just lamenting the fact that Jesus wasn't available to heal Lazarus, you know, when he, when he was sick, so, <clears throat> you know, so that he could have healed him. Healed him. Uh, now, to be fair, although Bethany was only two miles from Jerusalem, Jesus wasn't actually in Jerusalem when, when Lazarus took ill. He was actually in the Transjordan region, which was much further away. So by the time he got the message, even if he would have come right away, he still might not have made it in time. So, you know, we don't really know if she was scolding him or just lamenting the fact that he wasn't there. We can't really be sure about what her attitude toward him was. Uh, but, she says, even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Now, this could imply that she was expecting Jesus to resuscitate her brother, though her words to Jesus uh, in, in, in verse 24 and her protest at the tomb when Jesus asked them to, to take away the stone would seem to indicate otherwise. It might be best just to take this at face value um, as a general statement of God's blessings upon Jesus. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Now, although Martha may not have understood the full import of what Jesus was saying, her affirmation of an end-time resurrection was in keeping with the beliefs of the Pharisees and the majority of first-century Jews, including the teachings of Jesus himself. But what Jesus says next is the key to this passage and to the entire chapter. This is the I am statement of the passage. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Now, Jesus was speaking metaphorically here, but uh, when he says, I am the resurrection and the life, as Andreas Kostenberger puts it, resurrection from the dead and genuine eternal life in fellowship with God are so closely tied to Jesus that they are embodied in him and can only be found in relationship to him. In other words, resurrection from the dead and eternal life are so closely tied to Jesus 
that he can say, I am the resurrection and the life. Now, as I mentioned you know, at the beginning of the message, the I am statements were a claim to deity. And this statement is no different because resurrection, resurrection from the dead and eternal life can only come from God. If Jesus were not God, his claim would not be true. It would be blasphemous. But because Jesus is God, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, we know that his claim is true. And because of the implications of that claim, which Jesus points out uh, in the rest of verse 25 and in verses 26, um, <clears throat> what are the implications of that claim? Well, the first one, hold on to your seatbelt for this one. The first implication is that those who believe in Jesus, if they die physically, will also be raised physically. Jesus said, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. When Jesus says, whoever believes in me, though he die, he is talking about physical And when he says, yet shall he live, he is talking about physical life. Those who believe in Jesus may die physically, but we will also be raised physically in the end time resurrection. The end time resurrection will be a bodily resurrection. And how do we know this? Because Paul says that if we have been united with Jesus, then our death and resurrection will be just like his. In Romans 6, 5, he says, if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Now, to be clear, Paul wasn't just talking about physical death and resurrection, but the death and resurrection that he was talking about includes physical death and resurrection. It has to because Jesus died a physical death. His death was a physical death. Uh, his spirit was separated from his body in John 19.30. Jesus said, it is finished. And John then says that he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. In other words, his spirit was separated from his body, which resulted in physical death. Now, John goes on to write, since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Now, breaking the legs of a crucified prisoner would hasten the prisoner's death because it would inhibit them from being able to push up with their legs and thus enable them to breathe. Eventually, arm strength would give way and they would die of asphyxiation. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they didn't break his legs. Now, Roman soldiers were trained executioners. They were trained, you know, they knew how to recognize when someone was dead. And if they would have removed someone from the cross prematurely before he was dead, 
it would have been the same as allowing that prisoner to escape and their own lives would have been forfeited. It was a mistake that a Roman soldier could not afford to make and they didn't make with Jesus. They didn't break his legs because they knew that he was already dead. But just to be sure, John says, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once there came out blood and water. Now it is doubtful that John would have known this since it is something that was only discovered uh, by medical professionals many centuries later. But the flow of blood and water suggests that the blood platelets had already separated from the serum. Something that happen, only happens internally post-mortem. But John didn't have to be a medical professional to recognize that the flow of blood and water confirmed that Jesus was dead. And finally, John says, they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in that garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. The Jewish people did not bury people alive. They only buried people who were dead. So the fact that Jesus' body was buried further confirms that he was physically dead. His death was a physical death. Jesus' resurrection was a physical resurrection. There are some theologians and religious sects that argue that they deny the bodily resurrection of Jesus, claiming that it was only that it was merely a spiritual resurrection. But scripture, however, dispels this claim. The Old Testament foretold Jesus' resurrection. Psalm 1610, one of Pete's favorite psalms. <laughs> you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. A spirit cannot see, cannot see corruption or decay because it's immaterial. A body, however, can experience uh, decay and corruption unless it's reanimated before corruption begins to set in. The psalmist was confident that his Holy One would not see corruption because he would he'd be revived before it began to set in, right? Jesus foretold his own resurrection. After he had driven the money changers from the temple, the Jewish leaders confronted him and asked, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Then, when Jesus appeared to his disciples in the upper room, after the resurrection, Luke says that they were startled and frightened and thought they had saw and thought that they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. 
And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything to eat here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Now when Jesus first appeared to his disciples, they thought they were seeing a ghost. But Jesus said, no, it's me. You know, look at me. Go ahead. Touch me. See? A ghost doesn't have flesh and bones, as you clearly see that I have. By the way, yeah, you got anything to eat? I haven't eaten in three days. And he eats a piece of broiled fish in front of him. A ghost cannot eat because he doesn't have a body. <laughs> Jesus, however, did have a body because his resurrection was a physical resurrection. Now, if, as Paul says, our death and resurrection will be just like Jesus's, and if his death and resurrection was a physical death and resurrection, then our death and resurrection will be a physical death and resurrection. Our physical bodies will eventually give way to death. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.16 that our outer self is wasting away. According to the CDC, the average life expectancy in the U.S. in 1900 was 47.3 years. By 1950, it had risen to 68.2 years, and in 2014, it peaked at 78.9. Now, advancements in medical technology, um, in technology and medicines and even nutrition, have enabled us to live longer, more productive, and better quality lives than we ever could before. But no matter how well or how long we live, no matter how well or how long we might keep the Grim Reaper at bay, eventually he still wins. Hebrews 9.27 says that it is appointed for man to die once. Sooner or later, death is inevitable. But in the resurrection, when Christ returns, we will receive new glorified bodies. This is true not only for those who have died in Christ, but also for those who are still alive when Jesus returns. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we, sh and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? I've heard people ask the question, what about people who have been cremated and have th had their ashes scattered? Or maybe someone who's been blown up in an explosion how will they be resurrection? How will they be resurrected if there's nothing left to resurrect? And I have to admit, I don't know. I may not know exactly how they'll be resurrected, but I just know that they can be and they will be. Somehow, some way, Jesus will reassemble all the ashes and all the blown up bits of body parts and breathe life into them once again.
and for the rest of us, our bodies will be transformed because as Paul says in Philippians 3, 20 and 21, our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Now, I don't know about the rest of you, but that gives me something to look forward to. I know, on the outside, I probably look to you like the model specimen of anatomical and physiological perfection. But, I crack a joke, nobody laughs, I say something serious, and everybody busts a gut, I don't get it. You guys are weird. Okay. But I meant, believe me, I'm anything but. You know, it's funny, because one of my fishing buddies, every time we go fishing, he's always telling me about all of his ailments. And be brutally honest, I've done my fair share of that myself. And I laughed one time and I told him, I said, you know, when we were younger, when we were kids, we used to make fun of our parents for doing this and now here we are doing the same thing. I've told Twyla on numerous occasions that if New Jersey has a lemon law, I ought to be able to trade in this old clunker for a new one. And one day I will. And if you are in Christ, you will too. Because those who believe in Jesus, if they die physically, will also be raised physically. Because Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And because Jesus is the resurrection and the life, those who live and believe in Jesus will never die spiritually. Jesus said, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And when Jesus says everyone who lives, he is referring to those who have spiritual life right now. In John 3.36, he says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Has, that's present tense. This indicates that eternal life is not just a future expectation, but a present reality. And Jesus says that those who believe shall never die they ultimately triumph over death. Probably the most famous verse in the, in the entire Bible is John 3.16. I'm sure you know it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. One of my favorite movies is Braveheart. Now I have to admit, it took me a long time uh, before I was able to bring myself to watch anything by Mel Gibson after he went on his drunken anti-Semitic rant a number of years back. Uh, nevertheless, um, there is a scene in that movie. It was toward the end of the movie after William Wallace had been captured, imprisoned, and was awaiting his execution. The queen came to visit him on the night before his execution. She had sympathy for him and didn't want to see him die. William Wallace said to her, every man dies, not every man truly lives. Now that is a powerful statement. And it applies to the point being made here. Unless Jesus returns in our lifetime, every one of us will eventually die. But only those who trust 
in Jesus Christ will truly live. But what about those who don't believe in Jesus? Well, conversely, those who reject Jesus will face death because of their sins. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. Sin brings about death because it separates us from God. Isaiah 59.2 says, Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Ephesians 4.18-19 through 19 says, Sinners are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Sin separates us from God. And when you reject Jesus, you cut yourself off from him as well because Jesus is God and he is the source of all life. Now we've already established that the I am statements are a claim to deity so that Jesus is God. But the Bible also declares that Jesus is the source of all life. In his sermon in Solomon's portico in Acts chapter 3, the Apostle Peter even calls him the author of life. And John 1, 4 says, in him was life, and the life was the life. And when you separate yourself from the source of life because of sin, the inevitable result is death. That's why James 1, 15 says that sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death which means that those who reject Jesus will die twice. They will not only die physically, they will also die spiritually. In Revelation 21, 11 through 15, the Bible says, then, uh, John says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away. No place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The good news, of course, is that all of this can be avoided. The verse that I quoted just a moment ago, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. The second half of that verse says that the, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now there is a qualifier here which Jesus reveals to Martha in verse 26 of this morning's text. He asks her, do you believe this? Now Martha's response was, yes Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Now granted she kind of evaded the question uh, by, by stating her fundamental faith in her creed and she certainly didn't believe perfectly, as evidenced by her, her objection to opening Lazarus's tomb. But that didn't hinder Jesus. You know how the story ends. 
he raised Lazarus from the dead, right? Now, too often, we seem to think that Jesus can't work in our lives because we don't have enough faith. But stop and think about that for a second. If Jesus' work in our lives depends on us and how much faith we have, now that's just arrogant. It, it is. Jesus' work does not depend on... <clears throat> does not depend on, nor is it limited by, the quantity or quality of our faith. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, wait a minute. Didn't Matthew's gospel say that he didn't work many miracles in Nazareth because of their unbelief? Yes, he did. Yes, he did. And that is true. Because of their unbelief. Unbelief means no belief. means you don't believe at all. But it is not the quantity or quality of our faith that is important. It's who the object of our faith is that is important. Jesus was not the object of the faith of the people in Nazareth, which is why he didn't do any miracles there. But if Jesus is the object of your faith, then no matter how much or how little you might have, Jesus can and will begin to work in your life. Do you believe this? Martha believed it. The question is, do we? Do you? Do I? My mom believed it. And that's why I was able to say at her funeral that she wasn't dead. That's also why, even though I grieved, I didn't grieve as those who have no hope. My mom played a big part in, in me coming to faith as a child. And for that, I shall be eternally grateful. But what about you? Do you believe this? Jesus stands with arms open wide. He's calling your name, inviting you to come to him and live. Weak and wounded sinners, lost and left to die. Lift up your heads, for love is passing by. And come to Jesus, come to Jesus, come to Jesus and live. Now your burden's lifted and carried far away, and precious blood has washed the stain away. So sing to Jesus, sing to Jesus, sing to Jesus, and live. And like a newborn baby, don't be afraid to crawl. And remember when you walk, sometimes we fall. So fall on Jesus, fall on Jesus, fall on Jesus and live. 
Sometimes the way is lonely and steep and filled with pain. So if your sky is dark and pours the rain, then cry to Jesus, cry to Jesus, cry to Jesus and live. Oh, and when the love spills over and music fills the night, and when you can't contain your joy inside, then dance for Jesus. Dance for Jesus. Dance for Jesus and live. With your final heartbeat, Kiss the world goodbye. Then go in peace and laugh on glory's side. And fly to Jesus. Fly to Jesus. Fly to Jesus and live. Yes, fly to Jesus, fly to Jesus, fly to Jesus and live.